Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is the Akavanic Beaker Burial Project, Discovering Ava with Maya Houle. Do you remember back in mid-2016 when we had that facial reconstruction of the Bronze Age woman from Scotland? The whole world suddenly became obsessed with this stunningly lifelike reconstruction. And our email inbox was instantly flooded with links to all sorts of different articles and sites talking about this woman who lived at some time around the period of Stonehenge and was part of the beaker culture that dominated the island from that period. Now, this woman became known to the world as Ava, and she was named after the site for which she was found, the Akavanic Beaker Burial. And a stunning amount of research has been dedicated to discovering what her life was like, and perhaps how her young life ended, because she was only a teenager. Well, what you don't know is that for the last month or so, we've been talking with the people behind that particular project and arranging interviews. And today, we're talking with Maya Houle. And it's fitting that we begin this project with Maya, because without her work, none of this would have happened. Being an experienced archaeologist, Maya had access to numerous archives, and she had the knowledge necessary to interpret them. However, the thing that makes Maya such a force of nature isn't her training. It's how she's been using it. When she came across an archaeological finding that she wanted to know more about, she didn't say, someone should look into this. Maya did what so many of us should do. She reached out and asked if she could look into it herself. And what transpired next was something that made Ava and Maya globally recognized names in archaeology. It's an incredible story, but I'll stop spoiling it and let Maya tell you about it herself. My name is Maya Hu. I'm an early career archaeologist based in Scotland. I've done all sorts of different jobs. I've worked in local councils, I've done field work, I've done post-excavation work, so cleaning and weighing all sorts of Roman rubbish. I've done museum work and now I'm working for an organisation called Historic Environment Scotland who are the lead body for caring for and protecting Scotland's historic environment. My job in that primarily focuses on database and a website which is known as Canmore which is a record of all known historical and archaeological sites in Scotland. We try to get information about them when they've been excavated and photographs of them and videos and that kind of information. So it's a great online resource and that's sort of what I do for my day job. But I moonlight as a project manager for a project which I'm talking to you about today, which is the Akavanic Beaker Burial Project. And so the story of this project that we're talking about today, which is what's turning into the colloquial term is the Ava Project or Ava's Burial. Yep. The journey of your journey to her and finding her and bringing her to light is amazing. So I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about that, how it started, how you initially found her, and then how it got rolling. Yeah, sure. So I said that I, I worked for a local council, and that was oh, that was about three years ago now. And one of my duties uh, when I was working there was to do um, social media posts um, about sites in the Highlands. And I was searching through the database that the council have, which is uh, it's called a historic environment record. And again, it has um, a record of all known historical and archaeological sites in the Highland region. And what I was looking for was something interesting, something about the Bronze Age, maybe something about burials. So I started looking for Bronze Age burial kists, and I came across this record for this site which had been found almost 30 years before, but it didn't appear that it had been published, and it looked like 
most people had forgotten about it um, and so I got the paper file out and I was going through all the excavation photographs and information and sort of newspaper cuttings about it and I just thought this is fascinating and I was just absolutely hooked and three years later I'm still absolutely hooked and absolutely obsessed with this site so I mean my colleagues were really supportive and um, they were brilliant and yeah, it just it just sort of spiraled from there. Can you explain a bit more? Because I don't think a lot of people realize how many artifacts and how many sites and, and everything that we have largely go unexamined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how it works, essentially, because yeah. it is, it's something that we know about. But unless you've been in this world for any length of time, you don't realize that there are mm-hmm. just archives where things will get dug up, logged away, and then never examined uh, because there's no money for it. So what happens is if somebody finds something, uh, they tend to get funding to excavate it and they'll go out and they'll do a rescue excavation and make sure that archaeologically it's recorded. But what ends up happening is that we don't get funding so much for processing the post-excavation side of things. So a lot of things just archives, materials just end up in museums and there are boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff all over Scotland that's just, museums just full of material that nobody's had the chance to look at. And it's a bit of a problem really, it's a bit of a flaw in the system. And I think with Ava she just or with this project, it just sort of fell through the cracks. It was a rescue excavation. So it was done when a guy was doing rock extraction for road improvement works and he found it and there was no money there because nobody had sort of prepared for it or knew that it was going to be there. There was no money to fund the excavation. So it really was a very rapid process within a day or so of the material being scooped up and taken away and protected. So what year did this happen? So this happened in 1987 on the 19th of February, or at least that's when the photographs are from. Yeah. <laughs> so... How did you find this particular archive? So actually finding the archive, what happens is the the archive in a sense gets split into two things. There's the the sort of data side of it, um, which gets archived. Um, so this is uh, like the written notes and um, photographs, and this gets put into um, into databases and is archived either in Canmore or with the, the local council historic environment records. But then there's the other half of the archive, which is the physical objects themselves. And the challenge with this is because the information in the local council database was so old, there was no accurate record in that database for where the material actually was. Um, so I actually probably took me about six or seven months before I managed to actually find where the objects were. They'd gone to um, a museum in Caithness called the John Nicholson Museum, which had closed down and then turned into a Viking centre, which had then closed down and turned into a Brock centre, which didn't have any material in it. So at some point, these objects had been moved to another museum and I didn't know where they were and how I actually ended up finding them was I was just searching online to see if I could find anything to do with Akavanich and I was looking at um, Caithness Horizons which is the museum in Thurso, I was looking at their website and I came across a document which was for sponsorship of objects and as I was scrolling through the sponsorship um, PDF um, there was this picture of a beaker and I just got so excited because I was like that's the beaker that's the one in the archive photographs found it so I got in touch with them and asked them if they had the skeleton as well and they did and they they, they had the, the full archive um, of physical objects which oh it was such a relief to actually locate it <laughs> so they knew what they had but there's just no database then for where all these projects are yeah so well as I say that there's an initial 
recording of where the material is but if a museum changes or, or objects are moved they they don't tend to go back to the original database to say that we've moved stuff that information doesn't get updated so as things sort of move around and closures happen because of funding problems things go yeah. missing and it's a big problem actually in Scotland finding things yeah it's quite challenging sometimes but when you do find it it's very exciting <laughs> And so where was this burial found? What part of Scotland? So Akavanich is a tiny little village. In fact, it's only a handful of houses. And it's right up north in a region known as Caithness, the very north of Scotland. You can't really go any further than, um, than Caithness unless you go onto the islands. The landscape itself around there is really interesting, actually. It's this sort of flat plateau with very few hills. Uh, so you can see as far as the eye can see, and there's, there's no trees. So it's just heather and moorland all around you. If you look to the south, you can see um, a couple of hills really far off in the distance. And then the coastline is made up of uh, these huge cliff faces, just solid cliffs all the way down to the ocean. So it would have been quite um, difficult to to get down to the shore, if, if at all, really, unless you went to sort of where the rivers ran down and had created um, valleys or glens um, to get down to the to the shoreline. But the one thing quite interesting about the exactly where Ava's burial is, is there's these um, series of ridges, which you can see if you look at an aerial photograph of the region, this sort of strip of ridges uh, that are not, I mean, they're probably only about 100, 150 metres high, but she's buried on the very westward most end of those ridges so it makes you interested about what else may be out there but the, the archaeology in that area is fantastic Caithness has so much upstanding remains in fact there is a, a really beautiful stone setting not too far from Ava's burial which has 42 standing stones is in a sort of horseshoe shape so if you are ever in the area uh, we would really highly recommend going and having a look at it because it's quite a unique site there's lots of other sort of prehistoric archaeology up there that's quite unique. We get something called stone rows, um, which are unique to Caithness and Sutherland, which is the neighbouring region. And again, these are, we think they're Bronze Age in date, that we ha nobody's actually managed to get radiocarbon dates from them. And they are, they're really adorable. They're these tiny little stones, maybe half a metre in height at maximum. And then you get rows and rows and rows of them, sometimes up to 200 of them um, on top of hills. And we, we don't know what they were for or why people built them but they're, they're quite a mystery but there's loads of as I say loads of from all prehistoric periods there's definitely been a respect amongst the local community over the last several thousand years towards the archaeology of the region I and mean, it's a bit of a shame actually because as everybody's heading towards Orkney which is a sort of hub they miss out all this fantastic archaeology so a wee plug for Caithness there. <laughs> so that's where the burial was found and what does the burial in a very simple sense look like if you were to stumble upon it if it still existed today um, what was the setup? Okay, so there's a tradition in Bronze Age burials to be rectangular in shape. They don't tend to be very big. This one is, I think it's one metre in length by just under a metre in width. And then in height, the, the kist itself is probably maybe just under a metre as well in height. However, it's quite interesting, the rectangular shape as if we look at other Bronze Age site types, particularly roundhouses where people lived, so they were living in circular structures but being buried in square structures and what you would find is that the top of the, the burial it's almost the shape of a coffin really you get these large capstones placed on top and then they're buried over so they're completely watertight 
so from from the ground really you wouldn't you wouldn't see anything but if you dug it up that's the sort of shape that you would expect to see and then what was in the burial? So there's the skeletal remains of what we believe to be one individual. There's a beaker, uh, which is a clay pot. And there were three pieces of flint. And then there was a scapula or a shoulder blown belonging to a bovine creature. So a cow or a cattle. And what time period was the burial from? So we've just done radiocarbon dating in the last couple of months. And this was using a fragment of long bone. So the way that radiocarbon dating works is that you get a sort of probability scale. So at 95% probability, she's somewhere the burial somewhere between 2460 and 2140 BC and at 68% probability we get a slightly narrower range which is about 2300 to 2200 BC. So we talk about the Bronze Age and that's about their metallurgical skill set. So if we talk about where this burial was happening, where this individual was living in time, what were the sort of things that were happening culturally, technologically? Where, where do we situate her? So we got the, the numbers, but what does this actually mean in terms of what was behind her and what's ahead of her in time? So what we have before is the development of agriculture and that's in the the Neolithic and that happens around 4000 BC or starts to happen around 4000 BC in Scotland. What we see with the Bronze Age is this is the sort of the first appearance of metalwork. There is some debate if there's a Chalcolithic or Copper Age in Scotland. We do have the sort of cultural package associated with the Copper Age but we don't actually have copper appearing so that's quite an interesting debate which is ongoing and I imagine will go for many years to come. But the Bronze Age is when we start to see the appearance of, of bronze, as you would guess. But Ava's quite early on and we don't see bronze in her burial and in fact I've looked at all of the bronze finds from Caithness and there's no bronze that is contemporary with her burial that comes after her. So she's somewhere between the end of the Neolithic Revolution and then before the appearance of metalworking. And with regards to major finds that the listeners will recognize, where in, in time would Ava be placed in relation to those major findings? Scarberry would be before her. Well, there may still be people living at Scarborough, but the real sort of takeoff um, of that sort of region of the world would have been possibly a thousand years before Ava was alive. In terms of other things like um, Stonehenge would have been probably maybe just before her, but around the same time, though obviously at the very opposite end of the country, so a very long, long way away. Whether she knew about it or not, I don't know. And so people were burying their dead around this time in similar ways <laughs> across regions. So what about this kist in this individual was very typical for her time. So um, we've discussed the sort of contents and I say they're, they're pretty typical for what we see. The layout as well, so that this is uh, one individual. Now uh, you sometimes get two individuals, but it's more often it's one individual. The shape of the of the kist as well, that rectangular shape and the position the individual um, or Ava has been laid in in the burial are all pretty standard for what we would expect, not just in Scotland, but uh, elsewhere in the UK and even into Europe is a pretty standard layout. And I understand that there are actually some things that are atypical about this burial for the time. So give us a sense of those. So the, there's two things that are quite unusual um, for this burial. The first is that it has been placed into a rock cut pit. And that doesn't sound very exciting, but 
this is a, a hole in the ground that somebody has dug out of solid rock. And if you think about the technology that they would have had available at this time, it, it's quite remarkable, really. It would have taken a lot of time and energy um, to create it. So the, the pit itself is it's about one meter in depth, one meter wide and just over maybe one and a half meters long. And this is a huge amount of material. It's probably about two ton of sandstone. So it would have been really hard work. The hardest material that they probably would have had would have been antler from deer. And possibly they might have had harder stones as well. But I don't really think that there is many stone available geologically in that region that would have been harder so it would have taken an awful lot of effort. The second thing that's quite unusual about this burial is normally with Bronze Age burials of this type there's something above the surface, some upstanding remains that mark this as a place of importance and um, for some reason we, we don't see this at um, this burial which is one of the reasons it was such a surprise when it was found. There's sort of two possibilities about this. One, that there never was a cairn placed on top. Um, and secondly, that people have removed the cairn if it was there. However, if you look at the rest of the landscape across Caithness, as I mentioned previously, people have had a real respect for the upstanding remains. So I think it's quite unlikely that this one site would have had the cairn moved. I think it's more likely that there never was a cairn. And yes, it is un unusual, and we think, oh, it's unusual to find a, a burial without a cairn. But because we're only looking where there are cairns, and that's where we're finding burials, it suggests that actually maybe there are other burials out there that aren't under cairns. We just don't know where to find them or where to look for them. So with regard to the, I think you said nearly two tons of sandstone that yeah. they were digging out, about how long would that take if you're digging with antlers? I think it would take a long time. I mean, I've not done the direct calculations, but numerous days of hard labor. And again, it depends how many people you had doing it. Um, I, I th if it was one individual doing it, I think it would take them at least several days to do something like that. Has anybody done any ground penetrating radar, any any sort of geological su surveys to see if this was a um, site of burials, like 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 perhaps this is some sort of cemetery or something? Yeah, in fact, it's quite unusual. Well, we do find um, Bronze Age burials on their own, but it it is quite unusual to find them and there not be any other burials nearby. So that is a high probability and something I'm tempted to look at in the future if there there is um, other burials out there. I, my mind just might explode if I found more, though. <laughs> so much information! <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely um, something that we should do. And just for the benefit of those of us who I'm sure in the audience and don't know, could you explain to us what a cairn is? Yeah, okay. A, a cairn um, comes in many different forms. Essentially, it's a mound of stones that has been created um, on you know, purposely. Uh, but you get all sorts of different types of cairns. Quite common in Scotland, we have something called chambered cairns. You also get them in um, in Ireland. Um, I actually, get them all over the UK and Europe. But chambered cairns are when this large mound has been built and they've purposely created a chamber inside, quite often where we find burials. So they use big standing stones um, to support the structure um, of these of these cairns. But you get other types of cairns as well. We, we get things like clearance cairns, which um, is when people have been clearing the, f um, the land so it, it can be used for agriculture. So getting rid of the big rocks so that it's easier to plough. So yeah, essentially it's just a big, big pile of rocks. 
<laughs> and for the chambered Karens, would Mace Howe be a good example of that? A very good example, yeah. Um, Mace Howe is a, a fantastic example, actually. It's um, similar to one in um, Ireland called Newgrange, which I'm not sure if you, your listeners have heard of. But both of them have a trait where um, light travels up the passage at certain times of year and illuminates the inside of the of the chamber, um, which is just, it's just a phenomenon to think about the mathematical equations that these people would have been able to do without pen and paper nobody was writing this down they were doing it all in their head and then it would have potentially taken them decades to create these chambers uh, chambered cairns it's just uh, mind-boggling but i won't get too much into that because i could talk about that for days as well <laughs> <laughs> so we have a sense of where the burial is in the landscape sort of what it looks like and what time period it comes from and how it sort of conforms to some of our expectations of what they're doing in this period and and sort of deviates from our expectations of what they're doing in this period. So having had all that, let's sort of go into the grave here and start talking about what's in it. And if you could start with the three objects that were in there. Um, So we've got, you said you've got three pieces of flint, what looks like a cattle bone, and of course the all-important beaker, which um, was fascinating that that was actually how you found her again, was this beaker. but if you could just start with a flint, tell us what is the significance of that? Where was it found in there? And, and just what we think that means. The flint is really interesting on the basis that we don't know very much about it. And the reason for this was after uh, the excavation took place and the finds were transferred from museum to museum, the flint have got lost somewhere. So I only actually had one photograph of the flint included in the original excavation report so I didn't didn't know a huge amount about it, but I did a sort of call for information amongst the local um, community newspaper, and I was contacted by um, a guy who used to be the curator at the museum, uh, Caithness Horizons, um, before it redeveloped a few years ago, and he'd been around the entire collection, the entire museum, and he had taken photographs of everything in the museum, uh, including the uh, the pieces of flint. So I got two new photographs of the pieces of flint. And what they are, they consist of very small, probably no bigger than half the size of your thumb. One piece is what we call a tiny thumbnail scraper. And that would have been a tool that would have been used for working um, working hide or for cutting meat. And the other two pieces are just flakes, which would have come off of a core when the, the main tool was being created. So they wouldn't have had that much of a function, but would still have been a valuable resource. So the flint is is very rare in this part of Scotland. In fact, anywhere in Scotland, uh, you don't really find it. Geologically, it, it doesn't naturally occur. So this would have been a really um, important resource for this community to have. Um, and therefore, even though to us it's just a couple of small pieces of rock, um, it would have been taking something very useful out of the community and depositing it in a in a place that it would never have been accessible before. The size of it may be because... It was found as a pebble, perhaps, um, that washed up on the shore, because sometimes we do get flint pebbles appearing um, that have come across maybe from Germany even. But alternatively, it could have um, been brought into the area by trade, which is a possibility for sure. Uh, We know that there was long distance trade occurring, but unfortunately, because we've lost the flints, uh, we can't really do any analysis on them to find out where they were from. 
which is a shame, but you can only do what you can do with what you've got. <laughs> and so also found with Ava in that burial was a bone that wasn't hers, essentially. It's, it, we think it was from a cattle bone. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, okay. So the cattle bone is uh, the shoulder, shoulder bone of what we think was an animal of small, small stature, but uh, an adult, um, not a carfoot or a juvenile, though it's possible it was a, a sub-adult, um, so not fully grown, but almost there. But it's like, it's in, it's interesting, this is really interesting, because if it is a, a small adult, that gives us an indication that the cattle that these people had at this time were a lot smaller than what we have today. So their idea of, of a cow, what they visualised as, as a cow, is very different to what we imagine today. So do we have any idea of what this bone might have been used for? Yeah, so one of the theories when the original excavation took place was that it may have been used as a as a as a shovel for digging out the the burial. But as we've discussed, this is a burial that was in a rock cut pit and if it the scapula had been used for that, then we would expect to see quite a lot of damage on it. And we had this examined by a specialist and what she found or what she reported was that there was very little indications of any damage to it. So there was no markings from butchery markings, so no evidence of what they were using um, to cut the, cut the animal apart. And in terms of the theory about it being used as a, as a shovel, there was no damage to the 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 distal end where we would expect to see um, wear and tear, and then the end that um, would have been used as a sort of handle. There's no sort of smoothing or anything at that end, so there's nothing to give an indication that it was used as a tool in that way. So I do have one remaining question about the bone, but before that, I want to introduce sort of that crowding jewel of Ava's burial, which is the beaker. And if you could describe the beaker and just tell us a bit about beakers in general, uh, how they were found, why they're found in, in these burials and, and in what way and what we think that means for Ava and for her people. So beakers are they're quite an interesting term, actually. Beaker, the term beaker was, um, it was created by antiquarians. They found these and they... They found them and they found something else which is a Bronze Age pot known as a food vessel. Now the difference between the rim of these two um, vessels, um, one of them, the food vessel is very flat on top so it would have been very difficult to drink out of, where the beakers tend to have a narrower rim so you can see why they thought it might have been used as a drinking vessel and then the other ones were used for eating. However, we're not 100% convinced by that now, but because they've been called beakers, this sort of terminology has stuck with us and, and we have to work with it. And beakers, we find them all over Europe, in fact. They, they're they very much associated with the Bronze Age, and we find them mainly in funer- funerary contexts, like in this this burial. We do find fragments of them, um, evidence of them in sort of domestic settings, but definitely in Scotland there's not as much evidence from domestic settings as there is from funerary settings. In terms of this beaker, I mean I'm completely biased, I think it's the most beautiful beaker in the whole universe, but it's a short-necked beaker. 
It's about 16 and a half centimetres tall and at its widest it's about 15 centimetres. So the shape of a beaker tends to be that the, the rim at the top is quite wide and then it narrows in um, around the neck and then again it comes back out around the body of the of the, of the vessel and then it narrows again, not, not quite to a point but definitely to a smaller um, circle at the base than at the rim and that's the smallest part of the pot. This beaker has been very highly decorated. It's been decorated using comb impressions and they are made up of, uh, on this beaker, diagonal and horizontal um, marks. Um, we've looked in great detail, uh, myself and um, a colleague called um, Owen Masson, who's just um, finished his PhD in Bronze Age pottery uh, in the north of Scotland. And what we found was that it looks like there's at least two different tools have been used to make the impressions. So one comb has been used to make the horizontal pattern and another has been used to make the diagonal pattern. And what's interesting about that is it suggests that the person who created this vessel um, and who did the decoration had tools to hand. They were prepared for what they were they were making. Um, they were uh, an experienced craftsperson with a toolkit. And you actually know specifically where this beaker was placed. How did that come about? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So one of the challenges I faced when I was looking at the archive, whilst I had some sort of post-excavation uh, photographs of the beaker, I didn't have any photographs of the beaker in situ in the burial. What I did um, in terms of this is uh, I, I looked at comparative sites in the area to sort of get a rough idea of where it may have been positioned, but that wasn't good enough for me because there was lots of different alternatives. Sometimes they're placed at people's feet, sometimes they're behind the head, sometimes they're in front of the head. So what I did is um, I got in contact with the, the local newspaper and I did a call out for information and I was contacted through their Facebook page by um, a woman called Kathleen and her father had been uh, the first police officer on site when the burial was found and uh, he's he's in his 80s now but he I actually got to meet him a couple of months ago which was fantastic when I gave a lecture up in Caithness so that was a real privilege um, but what he did is he wrote me a report um, of his memories of the day and what he said in, in the report was that the finder had told him that he had removed the beaker from the the kist in case it would be crushed by falling rock and that it had been placed beside the skull. Now we know that it couldn't have been positioned in front of the skull on the basis that when the finder uh, was excavating he knew to stop because he could see the skull peering out of the rock at him. So if the beaker was in front of the skull he would have seen the beaker first and not the the face of the skull. So if it was beside the skull, the only place it could actually have been positioned was behind it. And that's fantastic that that little nugget of information has survived um, in this guy's head all this all these years. If if it wasn't for him, and if I hadn't done this the project now, maybe if I'd done it in another ten or twenty years time, you know, somebody had gone back to this material, that information could have been lost. He may not have been with us anymore. So it's fantastic to have that and to know that. Um, so you can find out information from all sorts of sources don't just rely on books ask people and talk to people about things because you never know what they might know that's amazing and my question in regards to how the cattle bone and the peaker might relate to each other in the sense that besides just being buried in the same spot with the same individual is if there's no evidence for the 
bone being used as a tool, is it a chance that there was actually meat on it, that this might have been some sort of a, it, you know, food for the journey type of situation? Has This is me just thinking aloud, but I was wondering if that's something that's been bandied about or otherwise ruled out. Yeah, it's definitely a theory and um, possible. The only thing that sort of springs into my mind is, I don't know about you, but I've, I've never gone to a butcher's and thought I'm going to get a, a hunk of shoulder meat. It, it doesn't tend to be the, the juiciest part of the body. It's not what we would initially think of as being, you know, the most likely thing you would you would deposit. You may be more likely to give something like the heart or um, the rump or something. But that's potentially just our modern day interpretation of what the you know the most important part of a cow is. Perhaps the shoulder bone was a delicacy, and that's why it was included. So yeah, potentially there's something there for sure about um, deposits in terms of food for the afterlife of this individual, for them to take into the afterlife and to nourish them. Have we seen any other burials that have similar cattle bone deposits? I'm not aware of any other burials that have um, a scapula like this one, but there is another burial. It's, in fact, it's got a fascinating um, a journal article that you can read online for free at a place called Strathochel, which is in Sutherland, which is probably about 50 miles to the west of where Ava was found. And what they found at this site, although there was a huge amount of... Um, deterioration, they found a lot of organic remains surviving in the burial. It was quite recently that this one was excavated, so the sort of advances in science meant that we could recover this information to the extent that they actually found fragments of cattle hides surviving. Um, And, you know, looking under the microscope, they could tell quite a lot about it. They think that it was possibly a a shroud or a blanket that was placed over the individual uh, when she was um, placed into the grave. And what's interesting again about that one is that it's also a female burial like the one at, um, we see at Akavanic. So it's two female burials in the north of Scotland who are both buried with cattle. You have to sort of think that there must be something happening there, something in common there. That's really cool. <laughs> so returning to the beaker, part of what you've been doing with Ava is that you go out and every time there's a question, you both secure funding and then find an expert to to answer this question. <laughs> and it's an impressive amount of work. And so the amount of analysis and types of analysis that have just been done on this this one individual is astounding and entirely thanks to you. And if we turn to the beaker, one of these analyses that you've secured is a pollen analysis. <laughs> so I was wondering, could you just take us through the pollen analysis and what what that entails and then what's found and then what we think that means. Yeah, I was really lucky actually to get this funding. This was from the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland who um, one of their members of their team had seen me um, present at a conference and he came over and, and said to me this is quite early in this in the research that it was you know it, it had a lot of potential so I put in the um, application and was successful which was a really really exciting day for me um, finding out that I had been granted the money um, and what we did um, what we were granted by the society was the funding to do what's actually turned into three pieces of research. We have the the pollen residue analysis, isotopes, which I'll talk about shortly, and also radiocarbon dates. Now the pollen analysis, the reason we did it was that when the burial had originally been found in 1987, they did a preliminary examination of um, the residue that was coating the inside and the outside of the beaker. 
and what they found was quite a large quantity of pollen but unfortunately the the methodology of this research was never recorded and some of the interpretations of the types of pollen have been quite baffling we've we've struggled to understand what exactly um, was identified and um, for instance one of the things that was was written was pollen with latex and without latex and none of us are quite sure what that means <laughs> so that's yeah. what yeah um so we I decided that because it had such a, a, a great response um, or result originally, we would see if there was any pollen surviving and if we could get any more results that would uh, you know, give us more information. So this was carried out by the University of the Highlands and Islands, actually um, up on Orkney, by a guy called Scott Timpany, who's an expert in pollen residue analysis. And Although he found a very small quantity, it was quite exciting what he found. So the original analysis suggested that potentially the contents of the beaker could have been an alcoholic beverage, which would be really exciting. But as I said, some of the original analysis was questionable. So when Scott looked at it, he found that not much had survived. I mean, you would expect this. It was 30 years the beak has been sitting in museums for 30 years so you wouldn't expect that a huge amount has survived but what we did find was rather than an indication of what was the contents of the beaker it's given more as an indication of what the landscape and environment was like so I don't know if you remember but right at the beginning of this conversation I mentioned that the landscape in Caithness is open as far as you can see it's just um, heather and moorland but what the pollen analysis came back suggesting was that actually there was numerous types of trees in Caithness at this time. Trees and shrubs like birch and Scots pine, um, hazel and alder. Which is really interesting because it completely shifts what you think of the environment as being like. It's not a heathland, it's a woodland environment. Um, and your line of sight would be different. It would only be, for instance, from the top of the hills that you'd be able to see far rather than um, down in the woodland, you wouldn't be able to see much. Um, other things that we found um, was evidence for things like ferns and bracken. And we also found the uh, pollen of several types of flower, which is quite intriguing. Um, so we found Meadowsweet, uh, St. John's Wort and Heather, which all have, at least uh, St. John's Wort and uh, Meadowsweet have medicinal properties. Uh, Meadowsweet is almost has qualities like aspirin and sort of a painkiller and St. John's Wort is thought to potentially have um, qualities like a disinfectant. Um, so we wonder if there's you know, perhaps a reason why they've been specifically chosen to be included in the burial because of their medicinal properties. And again, I quite like the thought that flowers have been placed with her in the grave. It, it's, I suppose it's a slightly romantic uh, notion, but that um, people who loved her and, and who buried her wanted to bury her with something beautiful. Uh, I think there's something quite, quite sweet about that. Going a little bit back to the comment you made about the changing environment dumping Kate hmm. Ness, has there been any thought as to what might have caused that to occur? Yeah, so again, that's not that's a really good point to raise. So the landscape was, you know, heavily wooded. It may have just been one or two trees, you know, gripped together. It might not have been completely covered in trees, but there was definitely trees there. And we know that uh, in Orkney, they ran out of trees a long time before Caithness did. Um, so we think that potentially people from Orkney were coming over and stealing the trees from Caithness uh, to build their <laughs> ships. <laughs> 
but yeah, it's 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 definitely being caused by people. Um, it's a mass deforestation. Uh, people were not really thinking about the long term consequences of that. Um, so yeah, it's just been a, a mass clearing for you know, for burning, for fuel, um, for building as well. And it's really interesting that we've got now got this date that we know that Caithness had trees in it um, when Ava was alive. Um, so we know that it was after the early Bronze Age that we start to see the mass deforestation. It's a good thing we left that kind of behavior back in the Iron Ages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've learned our lesson. <laughs> Clearly, Forever yes. as a species. <laughs> so... I understand that initial pollen analysis that might have pointed towards an alcoholic beverage is probably suspect, and we're not sure if the beaker held any sort of alcoholic beverage. But I also understand that that might be remedied in the future now that we've (laughs) brought that up to modern date. Is that I heard rumor that there might be a gin made out of the notes that are being found in Ava's beaker. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's looking like it might still go ahead, which is very exciting because I'm a big fan yes. of gin. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's a, a local distillery up in um, Sutherland, which is not too far from, from the burial, um, called Dunnett's Bay Distillery. And uh, they're looking at creating a gin, um, which is primarily flavoured with meadowsweet, which is really, yeah, it's going to be great. I can't wait to sample it. Um, the, the team there have been really enthusiastic about it and are, are keen to go ahead. So hopefully in the next month or two, we might have some Bronze Age inspired gin to drink. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if this is going to go in or not, but I love gin. So are they still using <laughs> juniper or are they going to completely replace the juniper with meadowsweet? No, I think they will still include the juniper to give you still the standard um, flavor, but they're going to use the meadowsweet as a sort of extra... Floral. Yeah, extra. Yeah, because yeah, I don't know if you've ever tasted meadowsweet. No, no, I haven't. So it kind of, it's a really interesting taste, actually. If you're, if you, I don't know if you guys have it in the States, but it's a white flower and it has this really strong smell. It smells like a mixture of honey and almonds. And when you eat it, it's almost, it's kind of like eating marzipan i suppose but a really honeyed version of marzipan it's okay yeah and you can just pick the flowers <laughs> off them and, and just eat them and um, it's yeah when i'm out on excavations i i tend to do that if there's a meadowsweet around and it's yeah i just i just like reimagining what that would have been like for people in the bronze age <laughs> So if you keep us updated on that, we promise to keep our listeners updated on that so long as there's enough reserve for everybody. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm sure it'll be by demand. So if we manage to sell it all out, they might make some more. (laughs) Um, Awesome. So cattle bones and maybe non-alcoholic, perhaps alcoholic, we hope it is, beakers. Mm -hmm. And of course, the scrapers. Moving on to the star of the show, Ava. So we did find the individual there and let's start talking about her yeah and i think the way to start is tell us about how eva got her name so it's a little bit controversial i think um to assign a name to somebody from the past um quite a number of archaeologists sort of squirm at the thought of doing that and it's because you are you are forcing an identity on somebody who would have once had an identity and no matter how hard you try you you won't be giving them the same identity that they had in life however I didn't I didn't 
intentionally name her. The reason that she, <laughs> the reason she got her name was that um, the word Akavanich is it's slightly challenging to pronounce, as many names uh, of places in Scotland are. And I've noticed when people have been introducing me for for presentations or lectures that they quite often get rather nervous about rehearsing how to say it beforehand. The middle of the word Akavanich is spelt A-V-A, so it became an abbreviation um, actually to start with for the project. But as Ava got more attention, it sort of started to become a name for her. And I didn't want to fight it because people seem to really connect with this individual because she had an identity. And yes, it's not the same identity that she had, but we really do need to remember, and archaeologists can be bad at this sometimes, is that we're not looking just at a, a pile of bones in the ground here. We're looking at a human being who lived and breathed like we do and felt um, and experienced the world. And I think you know, we need to remember that she was a human being. So giving her a name really seems to have helped create an identity for her. And I don't know, I'd, I'd love her to be able to come back and have a five minute conversation with her about whether she'd like to have no identity or the wrong identity. I don't know which one's, which one's worse. <laughs> and so moving on to her remains, hmm. I think the best way to start that conversation is just to tell us what parts of her actually remained? What, what parts of her did we find and what we're working with and what we're not working with in terms of what, what's still missing? Okay, so I'll start from the very top. Uh, we have her cranium surviving, uh, so that's the top half of your skull. We also have um, a large quantity of the teeth from her upper jaw. In fact, a lot of them are still in situ in the skull. Um, we have teeth from her lower jaw, but we are missing the lower mandible, the, the lower jaw itself, which is quite interesting that the teeth have survived, but the mandible hasn't survived. We have vertebrae surviving from the top of the spine and the, bottoms of the, the bottom of the spine. We have numerous rib bones surviving from the right-hand side of the body. We also have the right scapula, so that's your shoulder bone. Same with the cattle, where we have, I think it is the right scapula of the cattle, actually, uh, the cattle bone um, as well, which is curious. We have long bones from the right arm, including the upper and lower, uh, both in the lower arm. And we have fragments of finger bone from two of her fingers, I think um, her pinky and either her middle or her fourth finger. Then on the left-hand side, we are missing the long bones from her arm, and we don't have any ribs from the left-hand side either. Um, and of her pelvis, we're missing the left-hand side, but we do have fragments of the right-hand side of the pelvis, but in very poor quality. We have the long bones from both of her legs, in fact, all of the long bones from her legs, although we're missing her knee bones, and then we're missing all of her feet. What is interesting, actually, and it's about the evolution of science, really, over the last 30 years, is the upper um, bone, so the femur from her right leg, has been completely destroyed, and that was during the original radiocarbon dating process. Um, but now that we've redone the radiocarbon dates, um, it's just a tiny fragment of bone from her, her, from her tibia and her lower leg. So we've gone from having this huge chunk of um, bone needed to get a date 30 years ago to an absolute fragment of the size today. So it makes you wonder what we'll be capable of doing in the future. Yeah. So we've been looking at your site and we'll provide links to this on this episode and we'll also talk about it at the end of the interview. But you've done an excellent job illustrating how this burial looked. But since this is an audio format, can you describe 
the position that Ava was in and what that tells us about her burial? Yeah, that's a really good question. So this is one of the um, interesting things about assigning a gender to Ava. What we see is that she's been buried in a very specific position, and we do see this at um, most Bronze Age burials or beaker burials of this type, is that she's been placed in um, a crouched position. So I spent hours and hours um, staring at the excavation photographs to try and figure this out. But the bones of her left leg are, in fact, the highest point of the body. So that suggests that she was lying on her right-hand side. Um, So her knees uh, were really high up underneath her chin, tucked under her chin. And I actually didn't really realise how far up they were positioned until I asked my my then flatmate to pose for me for, uh, for the illustration that you can see online. And no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't get her knees up underneath her chin as high as I wanted her to get them Um, and no matter how much I asked she wasn't particularly comfortable with me tying her up and taking photographs of her so that we can get her her knees right up under her chin Um, so this is this is quite interesting because it means that she would have been manipulated into that position it's almost like a fetal position if you think about it so she would have been lying on her back with her knees up high and what we see is that lying on your right hand side um, and the way that the burial has been laid out is that her head is in the west and she's looking towards the south southeast which is interesting because so there's a an archaeologist called Alexandra Shepherd and what she's been looking at um, both in northeast Scotland and northeast England is that male burials and female burials tend to have a set pattern so women are buried lying on their right hand side with their head to the west facing south and then men are lied on their left hand side with their head in the east facing south and that's that's really interesting that we see that Ava is fitting into that pattern because it reinforces that her gender would have been female. So it sounds like we might be seeing some sort of cultural burial practice in Northern Britain. Do we have any idea how far that burial practice stretched, whether or not, for example, it was also being done on the continent or elsewhere? Yeah, I, I would. I think it's definitely happening on the continent as well. I have personally haven't done the research for this, but I would not be surprised if this is a a, a cultural tradition that has has come from the mainland um, and has spread and has been carried through every community. It's it's consistent and it's it's always especially with people that are buried with beakers when we look at other bronze age burials and or burials with food vessels they don't necessarily fit into that pattern but definitely for the people that had beakers so yeah that's something i'd love to do is to you know go to the continent and start looking at um, other european burials and seeing if they they have this tradition but it was definitely happening from at least the the very north of scotland down to northern england and as i say very likely beyond Are there any thoughts as to what the significance for this behavior might have been? It's possible that there's some sort of cultural belief in that society that something was to the south because that's the common factor between um, both of these individuals or both male and female burials is that they are they are lying and, and facing south always in that direction but what that is I, I don't know it may be halfway between where the sun rises and sets um, but then why not get them to face north instead so we know quite a bit just from how she was lying in the grave, but then we also have the bones that did survive. 
And in terms of both their structure and then their chemical makeup, they tell us quite a bit. So I was hoping you could walk us through that and start with both what the sort of physical shape and size of her bones tell us mm-hmm. about her. And then we'll move on to sort of what the cool chemical material makeup of the bones tell us about both her life and then her death. So in terms of the physical bones, um, there's two sort of things that we can tell, and that is um, the gender and also the age of this individual. So first off, in terms of sexing, there are main way of um, telling the gender of a skeleton is um, by the pelvis. Unfortunately, um, as I've said for Ava, her pelvis has largely deteriorated, so we can't really use that as a way of identifying if she was female or male. However, there are other indicators on the body. Um, one of these, um, and one of my favourites, is, is um, brow ridges. Generally, um, females don't tend to have prominent brow ridges, and you can have a check and feel in yourself if you want to, though if you're commuting to work on the train, you might get strange looks. The other thing is um, on the skull as well, just behind your ear, there is uh, a bone um, that sort of sticks out a little bit on the side of your skull. And generally we see that in males that tends to be more of a sharper angle, where on females it's sort of more gentle. But that's not, you know, sometimes you do get um, males who are who, who show these characteristics or females who show male characteristics. But the, the main sort of thing with her bones is that they're all very petite and, and, and very gracile. So we think that it's, it's quite likely based on that, that she is female. And then tying in again to this um, idea of, of the layout of her burial sort of helps to reinforce that. And then in terms of her age, we think she's quite young, or what, what we think of in the modern world is quite young, somewhere between 18 and 22 years of age. And there's two sort of things that make us think this. The first is um, the um, quality of her teeth. They don't show a huge amount of wear and tear. They're, they're pretty good, uh, which means that, you know, she, they've not been worn down over the years, which is what we tend to see in, in older individuals. Um, and secondly, um, it's to do with the vertebrae at the bottom of the spine and where they reach the pelvis. At some stage, these, I'm not ex- exactly sure what the technical term is, but they, they either um, forge together slightly um, or they change in some way. And that um, tends to be after the age of 22. So we're not seeing that in Ava. Um, so she was, she was quite young, you know. 18 to 22, though, in her community that may have been middle-aged without finding other members of that community and finding their age. We can't really tell whether she was middle-aged or quite young, but in today's world, yeah, she's she's pretty young. So another thing that you've been able to secure for Ava has been a series of stable isotope analyses. And so we learned quite a bit about how she was living through these. And I was hoping you could introduce how we use these in general and then how what they've revealed about her in particular. So what stable isotopes are is they are um, different types of chemicals that are found in the bone. And they can tell us different things. The two primary things that we look for tell us about um, the location that an individual was in when they grew up. So sort of... um, in late childhood and also about what they were eating, what their diet was like. 
So what we did for Ava is uh, we took samples from her second molar and also from a fragment of rib bone. From the molars, the reason that we use the molars is because uh, teeth tend to survive, they, they, they preserve better through time, uh, sort of, you know, in the sort of taphonomic process of deterioration. Um, so what we, what we wanted to do was to get a really good sample and the two elements that we're looking for, the two isotopes that we're looking for there are strontium and oxygen. And the strontium and oxygen are used to tell about location. The oxygen is it's pretty simple, really, um, when you get your head around it. There are two signatures that we tend to see in Britain, and one is an indication of somebody living on the west coast, and the other is an indication of somebody living on the east coast. And this is all to do with rainfall. For those of you who don't know the the, <laughs> the weather here in, in, in Scotland, the west coast gets a lot of rain, um, an awful lot of rain, and that's because um, all of the mountains are on the west coast mainly the big mountains and we get a lot of um, the weather system comes in off the ocean and hits the mountains and all of the rain falls there and by the time that weather gets to the east coast all of the rain has dropped so that's why the east coast is a much drier place to live. And what we're seeing with the signature for Ava is it's definitely a signature from the east coast which is where her burial is so that matches up quite nicely. Strontium is a little bit trickier. It's all to do with the underlying geology of a region. So different um, rock, rock types have different strontium signatures. And although we don't have fantastic data from the Caithness area, we have enough to work with to give us a rough idea. So what we're seeing is the strontium um, comes from the bedrock and is absorbed up through the soil and then the plants take up the strontium um, and the plants are eaten either by animals or uh, by humans or the humans eat the animal. And all the way through this chain you get um, the same strontium signature surviving. So when you look at somebody's teeth um, and the strontium signature in, in the bones it can give you an indication of what the underlying geology was like in the region that um, she was living when her teeth formed. And what we see for the strontium is that Ava did not live exactly where she was buried, but she she likely lived to the south or the west. Um, although she could have lived in numerous other places, um, not just in Scotland, but also in England. But we think because we have the oxygen suggesting the east coast, and also the uh, strontium suggesting um, a sort of match in proximity, that it's likely that she did grow up, grow up in Caithness. And actually looking using um, actually using the Camwood database that I mentioned at the beginning um, in GIS, I've um, had a look at um, what the nearest known Bronze Age settlement is, and there's one that's just uh, about 12 miles to the south, I think, in a place called Berrydale, which has numerous um, hut circles. I think it's about 15 of them in this river valley, and I like to think that potentially that's a candidate for where she grew up though we have no evidence and no way to really find that out for sure. Then we also, I mentioned, we looked at the carbon and nitrogen. And the carbon and nitrogen tell us about diet. So what we see is there's two sort of types of signatures you can get from this. It's not going to tell us exactly what the animals she was eating or the plants she was eating, but what it can tell us is whether an individual was eating land-based terrestrial resources or if they were consuming marine-based resources and, and things from, from the sea. 
And what we see for Ava is actually one of the most distinct signatures that um, Dr. Jane Evans, who did this analysis, she's at the Natural Environment Research Council um, Isotope Geoscience Laboratory down in England. Um, she told me, and, and in the report she sent me, that this is one of the most extreme signatures she had seen in favour of terrestrial-based resources. So even though she was living and she was buried only two and a half hours from the ocean, uh, she was not consuming anything or very little um, from marine resources. And that's kind of interesting because it raises a number of questions of why was this? Why was she not eating from this resource? There's a couple of different theories. The first is that access to the to the ocean, as I mentioned, the, there are huge cliffs in Caithness, so it might have been really difficult or dangerous to get down to the to the sea. However, there are a number of river valleys where you can get um, access, so potentially they were using them. But it's a very dangerous thing to do to go out to sea, especially when you could get washed away by the tide, and then if you end up with no way back to the river mouth, then there's there's you know there's only these massive cliffs to climb up to get back onto the land. There's also a theory that potentially the land was offering enough of a resource that they didn't need to go to sea to forage for, for more food. They had enough um, at hand um, on the land. And we know that they were they were likely growing crops and they were raising animals as well. They were, um, you know, by the presence of the cattle scapula suggests that they were, they were farming um, cows. So they may have had enough there. The other theory is um, quite interesting. We look at um, other societies across time in Scotland. We see it in the Iron Age and we definitely see it in sort of 17th, 18th century townships in uh, rural parts of Scotland, particularly um, St Kilda is quite an interesting example. And that's that um, people who were eating marine resources were considered to be of a lower class or a lower status. And it was those who were living off, you know, um, game from the land, from venison or uh, from pheasant or even capercaillie, which is a very obscure bird we have here in Scotland. That was uh, a sign of status if you lived off things from the land. So that may actually potentially extend all the way back to the Bronze Age, that they weren't consuming things from, from, from the ocean for that reason. There's another theory, again, <laughs> there's a lot of theories in archaeology, is that the sea was potentially considered as uh, another world. We see um, definitely on the continent evidence that there was this idea that water was associated with the afterlife. So if that's the place that the spirits of your ancestors go um, after, after death, would you want to be consuming them or consuming the things from their environment? So it's potentially something to do with a, a sort of belief system um, or I don't like to use the word ritual because that tends to be an escape clause for most archaeologists when we don't understand something we say oh it must be a ritual um, but it may be something to do with um, what they believe in their society. So her bones are telling us some things about her life um, and potentially even extending on into maybe hints at what they might have believed while alive but mm. there's also a sense there was an early question about what might have happened to her immediately after death that was sort of answered by our bones and this had to do with mummification mm. and 
when we say mummification, we're not necessarily saying about these sort of royal practices from Egypt that most people think about, but just mummification in the sense that the normal process of decay was interrupted in a deliberate way. So I was wondering, that was the question with Ava, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about that part of the story. Yeah, so I was really fortunate to uh, be put in contact with uh, a guy called um, Dr. Tom Booth, who's a research associate at the Natural History Museum in London, and he did his PhD research on mummification in the Bronze Age. In fact, he looked at the site at Cladhallen, which is fascinating, really interesting site um, if you haven't heard of it before. So what we see on Cladhallen is that underneath where people were living, what appeared to be the remains of one individual had been buried. But what, on excavation, it turned out that this was actually um, different parts of multiple people. And the first real clue for that was that where we expected to see finger bones, we were actually seeing toe bones. So this individual had really um, strangely elongated fingers um, in in the plans when you look at the burial. And in fact, this was several individuals, uh, remains of individuals from over a time span of 700 years had been used to make up this one body which was buried under the under the ground. What um, Tom saw when he was looking at the bones there was, as you say, the natural process of decay had been uh, had been stopped. And the way that Tom does this is, so he will take thin sections uh, of bones. Um, I think primarily he works with the femur bone, and he looks at it in profile. And what you can see is, if you if you had the one from Akavanic up next to the one from Clad Helen you would see that the clad Helen one in appearance is very white and with very little mottling. But what you see on the one from Akavanic is this lots of dark speckles. And what this is, what it's caused by, is by bacteria from your gut um, starts breaking down your body during the natural process of decay. And it, this bacteria burrows into your bones and starts to break it down. So when you see that um, process of the mottling effect of these these tunnels, we know that the natural process of decay hasn't been stopped. Where at Clad Hallen, where the bone is is you know almost fully fully complete, we know that this individual has somehow they have stopped the deterioration from happening, and they would have had to do that very quickly after death to make sure that the bacteria from the gut didn't break down the bones. And it's likely that they did something like buried the individual in a bog where we have anaerobic conditions, so the natural aerobic processes, um, oxygenated processes can't happen and the bacteria dies and can't function. But we're not seeing that archivanic. What we're seeing is that this individual was buried very soon after death, um, which is fascinating to be able to get that information. And so through her bones, we know that Ava was not mummified in any (laughs) sort of way and probably buried in this particular kist soon after death. And that actually becomes important for something that's going to come up a little later. But before we go there, Let's talk about sort of the most important part of the body when we find someone in an archaeological context in the sense that it usually gives us the most information about an individual, and that's the teeth and the skull. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could go through a little bit of what we learned from those parts of Ava in particular. Yeah, so we are really lucky that we got some time of um, a burial archaeologist called Angela or Angie Boyle, who's very kindly for free has done an analysis of, of this individual. And what she's found is that 
that um, based on the, the length of the long bones, uh, she's found that this individual was roughly 5 foot 6 inches, uh, which I think is around 160-170 centimetres in height. When she examined the teeth of this individual, she found something really interesting. It's a condition that's referred to as enamel hypoplasia. What it indicates is that this uh, individual, uh, Ava, during her childhood, um, sometime between one and a half and two and a half years of age, she was suffered some, some sort of illness or deficiency, which is fascinating. And in fact, in terms of, of the teeth, one of the things that Tom did when he um, was examining uh, the remains for evidence of mummification, he took an MRI scan of the skull. And what he found was that one of her teeth had never um, had ne- never erupted, it never come through and was actually still in, in her upper jaw. And what's amazing about that, what boggles my mind, is that I am sitting here 4,000 years t- later telling you this, telling you something about her that she didn't even know about herself. Um, and that's just uh, amazing. One of the other things that's really interesting about Ava is the shape of her skull. So we see in um, uh, beaker people in their sort of skull shape tends to be quite similar. They tend to be quite um, short and round. And what we see with Ava is that hers is particularly distinct. So there's something called cranial index or a cephalic index. And she has a very high score. Um, so she's gone f- not just um, being brachiocephalic, but she's actually hyperbrachiocephalic. Right? It's a really difficult word to say. <laughs> um, she's on the border of being ultra brachiocephalic. And what's interesting about this is when you look at her skull, um, either in profile, and you look at the, the top of the head, it's it's quite flat, and so is the back of her head. It's almost, uh, almost square in shape, um, which is really interesting because it, it makes you wonder why. This is not something that you tend to see normally occurring. So what we think there's a there's a couple of different theories here one is that it may just uh, genetically be the way that she was i mean that's entirely plausible but based on its un- unusual appearance we think that perhaps there's been some sort of um, interference uh, one theory that i tend to favor is that when she was when she was young she was swaddled so she was wrapped up really tight in cloth and, and carried around and she couldn't roll her head uh, even in children today if they if they can't roll their head the the, the soft bone at the back it, it tends to get flattened um, and that you start to see this sort of um, box-like um, shape occurring so it's all to do with being able to roll your head around the other theory is that potentially her head has been manipulated in some way that um, maybe it's been bound like a plank or something flat has been tied to the back of her head to give it this distinct shape and this may be some sort of cultural practice that for some reason they were doing in the Bronze Age. We don't know why or if this happened but if it did it's it raises up all sorts of interesting questions about why people were doing this. So it was a couple of months ago when Ava came to our attention when her facial reconstruction actually went viral and it went around the world and we were one of those who picked up on it and the facial reconstruction will put links to it on our website and everywhere else is the most beautiful one I've ever seen. They're they're getting to the point where they look like photographs of real people now. It doesn't have that sort of uncanny valley look that a lot of them have. And I think that might be why it went so viral when it did. But if you could tell us a bit about this facial reconstruction, how it came to be, what it tells us about her, um, and then your experience with it. So... uh 
one of the things I've been so so lucky with in this project is that people have come to me and offered me their expertise for free. A, a case in point would um, be when I first gave my first lecture at a conference a few years ago a gentleman who's um, a photographer came up to me and he's trying to get into photography as a specialist in archaeological um, photographer he offered me his his services and uh, he came round and we spent an entire day just ripping my entire flat apart so that we could uh, get this these eight photographs but they are they are absolutely fantastic photographs and like um, this guy called Michael Sharp a photographer I was also contacted um, a few weeks later by a guy called Hugh Morrison now Hugh is a, a recent graduate of forensic art at uh, the University of Dundee which is um, you know we're for those of you who don't know, uh, Dundee is on the east coast of Scotland. So Hugh got in touch uh, because he'd heard about the project and he thought it was really interesting and he was keen to try and do a facial reconstruction. And as I say, this is the only university I know of in the UK that actually offers uh, this course. So I was really lucky that he heard about the project and wanted to, to offer me his expertise. So he too came around to my flat. Um, we had uh, the cranium there because I was in between taking it from the museum, Caithness Horizons in Thurso and down to London to Tom. And he came round and we set it up. Um, he was there, we had a cup of tea and a chat, got to know each other. And he took these photographs and off he went. And uh, two weeks later, he sent me sent me this photograph that looks like a photograph of, of a woman. And I was just absolutely astounded when, when it came through. As you say, it it's so lifelike. And I just remember feeling really humbled to be one of the first people to see this and was so keen to share it with people. What Hugh does, how he works, is that he, he sort of uses, as you would expect, he uses the, the skull as a, as a base layer and he has um, the photographs that he takes. He takes them at a certain distance, I think it's about six foot, so that you don't get the skewing of the camera. And he uses a, a measurement, includes a, like a, a ruler in the, in, the, in the photograph of the skull. And then what he does is he puts this into a computer program and he starts building up the, the layers of muscle and, and, and tissue. So what he used for the depth of the of the muscles and the skin um, was uh, sort of average skin depth for a Caucasian female. And he also needed to reconstruct parts of the skull because the cheekbone on the left-hand side had um, has broken. So using the right-hand side, he's, he reconstructed this. He then went on to reconstruct the jaw um, using um, sort of measurements from along the, the upper jaw um, and also from the teeth that were surviving from the lower jaw. Um, and this gave us, you know, the sort of recreation of what her, the shape of her chin um, and would be. So once he'd sort of built up all of these layers and picked out the sort of clear details that were unique to Ava's face, that for instance, if you look at the facial reconstruction, um, if you look at her left nostril, it's much lower than the right nostril. So she would have had a very lopsided nose and it doesn't come across um, in, the, in the reconstruction so much, but she had the same issue happening with her eyes. Actually, one of her eye sockets is slightly lower than the other. It does come across a wee bit, but I suppose it's, it's only very subtle. And what Hugh does is he 
uses um, measurements of, uh, uh, that, I mean, you, you can join in if you want to. Again, I say if you are in public, you may get strange looks for doing this. Um, but if you feel uh, in your own mouth where your canine teeth are, that is the width of your of your mouth. So um, where your mouth naturally sits, it uh, ends at where your canine teeth are. And then the, the width of your lips um, up and down the ways height of your lips I suppose is to do with the, the, the length of the enamel on your teeth underneath. So you, you can really start to build up um, a, a quite accurate recreation of, of, of what the sort of size and shape of parts of the face would have been. So then once he has this sort of base layer built up he has a database of thousands of images and what he does is he runs this um, computer program and it picks out bits of faces that match best to the anatomy that he's created and that's one of the reasons that it, it's quite lifelike is because it's actually based on, on photographs of real people. And what he's done is he has chosen um, to give her, I think she has greeny blue eyes and sort of reddish brown hair. And although we don't have the exact um, information for this about pigmentation surviving, we decided to go with these colours because it's sort of atypical, uh, sorry, typical in the local community, the local society in that sort of region of Scotland at the moment. Um, we are hoping one day though, we, we do have ancient DNA analysis going on at the moment and potentially if that part of the, the DNA code has survived, we may even be able to tell what her eye colour and her uh, hair colour were. Her skin is pale. Um, I've had quite a lot of people ask me about this of you know, would, would her skin not have been darker than that? But at that time, um, uh, you would have to go a lot further back in time before we start to see uh, darker skin. And, and well, you wouldn't really see people in this that region of the world with darker skin. I think it's always been um, it's sort of it's evolved as a response to the amount of light that's available. It's all to do with pigmentation of the skin. So. That's why she has um, quite fair skin, and people today in Scotland still do have um, very fair skin. Though she probably spent a lot of time outside, so she may have had a, a ruddy complexion, sort of um, sun-kissed, shall we say. <laughs> I have that skin. Kiss is the wrong word. Uh, <laughs> so putting all the evidence together, what we know about her environment from the beaker, what we know of, about her childhood from her bones and her teeth, and what we know just about her people and the area she's living in. If we could put it all in one quick story, all the evidence we do have, what would her life have looked like from birth on into her fairly early death? Her life would have primarily revolved around agricultural practices and her community. So she would have likely been involved in uh, the cattle um, farming, potentially involved in uh, fishing for fresh water which is um, one of the land-based um, animals we think that she would likely have been consuming. She may have also been out gathering plants uh, um, or fuel from the environment as we know that, that you know there was trees there so I think she, she probably would have had a very busy um, life um, gathering uh, resources for her community but we know at this sort of time period that people we, we find evidence of sort of gaming pieces sometimes um, from from even as early as this so th there may have been some sort of recreational things happening in terms of what her hobbies was uh, or where we, we, we don't know she, she may have uh, 
done all sorts of things. She might have liked dancing and singing, or she may even have been the individual that decorated her pot and, and made it. It may have been her own. So she may have been uh, very skilled in, in lots of different things. But I think you know she would have been part of a, of a close-knit community of people. Um, how many there were who would have been, I, I'm not sure. But I imagine that you know the community was at the heart of, of, of her life. So with regards to her burial, I mean, as I said, the rock cut pit is, uh, it's taken a lot of time and energy to create this. So it's likely that she was, you know, considered of importance or, or even well loved amongst her community for them to go to this length to create her burial place. And I think, you know, that really, really tells you something about her as an individual that she was cared about and maybe she you know, she could do something that was particularly significant or different amongst her community for her to be given such a, I suppose, a prestigious burial for that for that time period. So Ava in her bones and her people in her burial have left us with quite a bit of clues as to her life, but there are still mysteries remaining and some of them are actually quite interesting and increasingly strange the more you look at them. And I was wondering if you could walk us through a few of the things that are still big questions around this burial so i think for me one of the the sort of really interesting questions and i slightly touched on this when i was talking about um what has survived of ava's skeleton is that we are missing a a large proportion of the left hand side and there's you know there's a, a couple of theories why this might be one is that um we see Preservation is an issue, you know, this is something that's been in the ground for over 4,000 years, so it may just be that that particular corner of the of the grave is, it may be where water gathered, and so, you know, you, you see particularly bad deterioration. However, as we have the beaker in that um, corner, and we also have the cattle scapular in that corner, it sort of makes me question. The other thing is about it that's... <laughs> slightly strange is that where the mandible is missing we still have teeth surviving from the lower jaw which I find really difficult to understand why part of it has deteriorated and the other part hasn't and you know the the skull has survived and in, in, the cranium has survived in, in pretty good condition so what we're trying to do at the moment and what we're actually waiting on the, uh, the results for imminently in the next week or two is we have radiocarbon dated the cattle bone. And the reason we want to do this is we want to see if it potentially is of a different date. It's possible that at some time after Ava has been buried, um, somebody has gone back and reopened the burial and taken some bones out and then potentially put the cattle uh, scapula back in. And the reason we think that is that this cattle scapula is placed over where the bones are missing. So that's quite interesting. I mean, why would they do that? I mean, again, I don't like to use the word ritual, but it's some potentially some sort of ancestral worship, um, remembering of people from the past. So potentially, uh, depending what the radiocarbon date comes back, that may be something that happened here. Um, and to be honest, we, we have very little evidence of this happening um, at any other sites. So that would be or we haven't been able to tell if it's happened at other sites, but if it does come back and says, yes, it, it was at a different date, um, perhaps it will encourage people to to date um, 
animal bones in burials and see if this is something that's happening elsewhere. The other thing that's, that's really kind of mysterious is that Ava was buried very soon after death and we know this because of the bone histology. And if she was buried very quickly after death, it's interesting because as I talked about the rock cut pit, this is something that would have taken a significant amount of time to create. It's not like, um, you know, she could have died and they could have just popped out in an afternoon and, and, and made this pit. This would have taken days. So if she was buried immediately after death, which is what we think based on the um, rate of bacterial decay in her bones, it makes you wonder if perhaps they knew that she was going to die. And if they knew that she was going to die, is that because somebody chose her to die? Was she a sacrifice? Is that why she ended up in this grave at such a young age? We don't have any evidence on the skeleton for um you know, any sort of brutality, any sort of damage to her bones. But there, you know, there's plenty of ways to die. She may have been poisoned and we wouldn't have any evidence surviving of that. Alternatively, it may be something to do with kists were um, being created by somebody in the community in advance of somebody's death. So perhaps that was somebody's job and perhaps they were made and then you bought them, you paid a certain price for them. Um, maybe it was five cows and you got a rock cut pit or so that's possibly one theory another theory is potentially that specific families had specific burial places and it's just that Ava is the last person to have been buried there uh, by that do you mean sort of like what they do in New Orleans where there's an above ground in New Orleans is often above ground but there's there's a, a burial spot and then they move after a while they move the bones out and put new bones in is that what you mean yeah so um we do see this in the Bronze Age um, in, in other places. In fact, it's in the, um, I was on a, an excavation in Cyprus a few years ago where, again, it was actually a rock cut pit. Um, they were digging these um, almost like they were like wombs in this huge rocky plateau, this like solid rock that it would have taken oh, years to create these tombs. And they were taking people in and, and positioning them in the middle. And then as they, or, or, or when the next person died, they would go in and they would split up the remains of the person before, which would have been a bit of a grisly job if you had somebody dying very close to somebody else. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's possible that that's, that's what we're seeing, that this is a, a, possibly a temporary burial place, that actually um, the bones of an individual were taken somewhere else uh, as a very final resting place. But I think that that's quite unlikely because it doesn't seem to quite fit with Ava's burial, especially if it has been reopened and some of the bones have been taken out. If that was a practice that was common, then why didn't they take all of the bones? Is there a potential uh, for this just to be anticipated? If she was sickly, we'd know she had an illness very early in her life. If she was just sickly mm. and this could have been a prolonged illness and they knew she was probably coming to an end just based on their own uh, lived experience of illness and, and likelihood of living. Yeah, potentially. I mean, yeah, she could be suffering from a long-term illness and they're preparing for it. Alternatively, and, and potentially it's a bit of a morbid thought, but if she was um, if she was pregnant, for instance, you know, if you, you think about even the dangers of childbirth in today's society with the technology and the m medicinal advances we have, it's quite a scary prospect. So to have been living in the Bronze Age and to have been pregnant... Um, you know, maybe, maybe that they were preparing just in case the mother did die. 
And I think, you know, based on the age that she is, 18 to 22, would be a, a perfect age for, for bearing children. But we don't see any evidence of, uh, you know, the remains of a child in the burial. So if she did die from childbirth, it looks potentially like the, the child did survive. So if that is what happened, then perhaps her offspring went on to live a full life and have offspring of their own. And potentially there's somewhere out there, there's somebody that has the same DNA from her. And I know that you're planning on doing an ancient DNA analysis. Is there mm. any plan to do sim- a similar study that they did with Cheddar Man to look at the surrounding area and see if she does have any descendants? Yeah, that that would be an absolute dream for me. And uh, there, there's once upon a time, <laughs> at the beginning of this project, I would have thought something like that would have been completely unachievable. But, you know, as hopefully you and, and, and the listeners can, can, can see, throughout this project, I've had amazing things happen that um, I could never have dreamed of happening. So potentially, yeah, I mean, would, how amazing would it be if we can get her DNA uh, from the ancient DNA um, analysis, which I think, you know, I have had a preliminary reports saying that they have actually managed to get a sample from her and a pretty good sample at that. Um, just what that sample then tells us, you know, we're waiting to find out. But if we could get a sample of that DNA and then go to, you know, people who have ancestors from Caithness as far back as they can trace to take you know samples from them and see if any of them have the same DNA that would be absolutely incredible to find out um, so yeah maybe one day it's uh, one of the the few things left on my wish list I've been very lucky in getting everything else on my wish list ticked off so have to wait and see. So that brings us to the next question is what's next for the Akavanic project? and what's coming up in terms of analyses or questions or projects that you're working on? Next, what we have is uh, the radiocarbon dates, which, as I say, we're hopefully going to get back in the next week or two. Um, then there's the, the ancient DNA analysis, um, and that's hopefully going to tell us about um, sort of her ancestry, where um, her ancestors lived, where they came from, and, you know, the likelihood is that they, they were not in Scotland, you know, they must have come from somewhere else before that. So hopefully we'll be able to trace back through um, uh, the countries or, or regions that, that her ancestors came from to get to, to Caithness. That's the sort of research that, that we're waiting on. But other things that are going on is we have, uh, I have this fantastic individual who, um, like me, uh, she's a real go-getter and, and tries to make things happen. She's called Hannah and she's um, she came to me with an idea and it wasn't something that I really had the capacity to make happen um, or the time based on all the other things that I'm I'm trying to do, like hold down a full-time job. Um, (laughs) So she came, she said, what do you think about doing this? And I said, you know, if you're happy to do it, if you want to do it, then then go for it. I I trust you, you take the information and and you see what you can make happen. Um, And she's just run with it. And what she's she's done is amazing. She's managed to get um, the University of Edinburgh on board. So we have two students, uh, master students from the informatics department who are working on their master's projects and what they're doing is they're going to create sort of virtual reality app or a computer game that will allow people to uh, in virtuality and possibly even with hand gestures to re-excavate the the burial they might even do things like um, do a 3D scan of the entire skeleton so that we can see it in the burial um, and also potentially you know map it out in sort of real height and size to give you a sense of the layout of the skeleton. 
and as we mentioned as well, there's um, there's the gin um, potentially happening. So watch this space for that. <laughs> and, and you've mentioned as well, I'm, I'm really into the way my brain works is um, I, I don't write things down in text. I draw things to try and understand them. Um, and that's been a, a, a real sort of... In, enjoyment for me um, in this project but also um, has really helped to engage people I think in, in the project so um, what we're thinking on potentially working on next is um, to create a, a sort of a small comic strip that explains visually so if you opened it one way uh, you would get the sort of scientific analysis of all the research that we've done and then I was thinking if you turn it over and open it the other way you'd get a, a sort of interpretation of what Ava's life and death was like and I'm thinking of working with sort of local youth archaeology groups um, to sort of bounce ideas around and create a sort of story uh, for what her life was like and that's just what's on the horizon at the moment but you know people are always coming to me with fantastic ideas of what they want to see happen and it just keeps going and it's fantastic to see so many different things happening from this one tiny little site where you know for 30 years she sat in a museum and nobody really thought anything of her and nobody really knew about her and now lots of people know about her and lots of people are interested in her and it's yeah it's really rewarding to see that. And I wanted to ask you about this. You have been a one-woman army pushing forward this story and, and getting funding and finding an audience. And the end result of this has been that Ava has become a global phenomenon. You've got pages in Portuguese about her. Everybody's talking about Ava. Uh, there's National Geographic involved, all kinds of stuff. So I wonder if you might be able to impart any of the lessons that you've learned throughout this process. Yeah, I think it's easy to to sort of look at projects like this and and think that, you know, there must be something really special about the people that do this but I absolutely guarantee you that there's nothing special about me other than my huge amounts of enthusiasm for the subject. I I did this project um, because I was curious and I wanted to know the answers to the questions and I was just really fortunate that sort of as I went along um, I was able to sort of share this experience um, with other people and the more I realized that other people were interested the more motivated I got and the more determination I had to get the answers because I wasn't just finding this out for myself now I was finding it out for other people as well and I think if you wanted to do something like this then don't put yourself down and think that you're not capable of it because you absolutely are it's just find something that makes you excited find something that you think you wake up in the morning and you go yeah I really want to find out this today and then go out there and just start asking questions just you know for me one of the really big positives for me is I went to quite a small uh, museum Caithness Horizons in Thurso and a lot of people tend to go to the big museums and, and ask if they can you know do research on, on the material there and where the national museums tend to have fantastic collections these little museums nobody really tends to pay them much attention and when you do go to them they are they're so excited that somebody's enthusiastic and excited about their stuff that they'll be you know so behind you and and so encouraging and and that's really rewarding so find somebody else who's you know has something that they that they want to work on if you can't find something yourself because I'm sure there'll be people out there that have ideas of, oh, wouldn't it be fantastic to do this? And then, you know, you can go and, and make it happen. But for me, the biggest thing was asking people for help. And uh, some people might find it 
kind of a scary thing to do but once you start asking you realize that other people are excited about it as well and the chances are they'll they'll say yes and they will help you and and that's that's what really happened with this project on Ava it's not it's not just um the I was the driving force it's that other people were excited and and they wanted to get involved and yes sometimes it was really overwhelming the amount of people that were interested especially when the facial reconstruction went live and uh, I mean it was just crazy when it went viral it was just such a uh, we didn't expect it at all we thought maybe you know couple of thousand people might see it and be interested but I think uh, on last sort of count uh, on Facebook alone we had like 50 million people um, had seen it and it's just an immense number of people but it's just so rewarding when you do do it and you have to put in a lot of hard work I'm not saying it's easy to do you have to be determined to make it happen but it's so rewarding when it works and I would absolutely encourage people to go out there and do it and don't be afraid to make it your full-time hobby I mean, I really don't do anything else other than go to work and come home and work on Ava. But because I have integrated it with things that I'm passionate about, like, for instance, my illustrations, um, I love to come home and draw. And I find it really relaxing and it makes me think about the project in different ways. So find something that, you know, a subject that you're interested in, something historical or archaeological that you're interested in, and then find some way to integrate it with something that you're really passionate about. Like it might be doing podcasts, for instance. (laughs) Find something that makes you happy and I promise you'll be as capable as I am of making something like this happen. So just go for it. Give it a try. And with regards to finding a starting place, you run a site, we talked about it briefly at the start, that catalogs a lot of the Scottish, actually all the Scottish finds, whether they've been investigated or not, right? Yeah, so what I do for my day job is um, I work, as I said, for Historic Environment Scotland on this um, database called Canmore. And what we do is... um, when anybody finds anything we record it in the database and we also have um, sort of archives of everything that's ever happened really in terms of archaeology um, so anybody who's uh, ever done an excavation they are sort of it's um, a statutory thing that they have to do is to submit um, their findings and, and their notes to the archive the National Archive is the most common one and that's that's who I work for. So what we do on Camor is we make all of this information available to you um, and you can go on and you can look at anything that you can possibly imagine that you might be interested in whether it's bridges um, in the middle of nowhere in the Highlands of Scotland or if you're interested in castles or brochs or whatever it is, there's huge amounts of information there. So it's a fantastic starting point and I would really encourage you to go and have a look at it. In fact, what we're doing at the moment, we have um, a project that I dreamt up last year and that my colleagues have been so supportive in, in helping me to, to get it happening. And it's called um, Archaeology Insights and you can access it from the homepage of Canmore. And what we're doing is throughout the year we're featuring it's about 100 sites and these are hidden treasures from Scotland's archaeological past, the sites that you've probably not heard about before. And we're getting um, the experts within the organisation and outside the organisation to write articles um, about these sites and sort of interpreting what they were and how they were used and it's you know we're doing it as a sort of chronology through Scotland's past so we start in the stone age and work our way through to the modern day 
so there's loads of information there that you can you can go and learn about different site types and if there's one that really interests you then get into Canmore and dig around and see what you can find because I'm sure there'll be something somewhere um, that could uh, do with some uh, some attention. So where can our listeners as as this project continues to go forward where can they go for their updates and to, to look more at the materials that you've gathered for Ava and the new findings that are going to be coming out? So I think the the sort of two best places to go if you want to keep up with the with the project the first is if you are a fan of social media um, I have a Facebook page which um, I tend to put lots of updates on especially as we get new research coming out I try to do the same on Twitter as well so um, at Ava Beaker Burial um, on Twitter and just the Akavanic Beaker Burial project on on Facebook that's the place to go for instant information and also if you have any questions you can go on there and ask me um, and I'll likely respond at any time of the day because I'm that kind of person and also the website so there's a WordPress website um, I'm sure there'll be links made available um, which has lots of blogs about the project sort of about other things the other Bronze Age sites that I've sort of had a peek into and sort of what they're about um, and also some really interesting articles that people have written for me. For instance, there's a gentleman who lives up in Caithness who's been experimenting with building roundhouses, um, which is a type of sort of houses that people lived in in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And he's written this really interesting blog about um, building them. So there's all sorts of random stuff on there. And the sort of really good one that we've got on that website is if you're interested in the facial reconstruction and want sort of more detail about how Hugh did this, he's written a fantastic um, blog. Um, and we've actually translated it into Portuguese and Spanish as well if you're so inclined to read it in other languages so go and check that out and so with that I think we'll let Maya get back to her project um, as a guerrilla archaeologist thank you so much Maya for coming and talking to us thank you very much it's been wonderful speaking to you guys I've really enjoyed this thank you if you'd like to learn more, you can follow the project on Twitter. It's at Ava Beaker Burial. You can also follow it on Facebook. It's the Akavanic Beaker Burial Project. And you can go check out Maya's website, akavanicbeakerburial.wordpress.com. And we're going to put links in the show notes of this episode. So you can also find those links there. Thanks for listening.